and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Tanya Asim Cooper, Assistant Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Restoration and Justice Clinic at Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law. We will discuss her article, Hashtag Sorority 2, which will be published in the Michigan State Law Review. So welcome to the show, Tanya. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. So this is a really cool paper um, and something that I hadn't really thought or knew known anything about before I read it. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the hashtag Me Too, which has been really kind of trending and making a big difference over the course of the last couple of years. Um, I wonder if you could talk about your use of the term hashtag sorority to. Um, is the problem of sexual violence addressed by the hashtag MeToo movement uh, especially acute or especially meaningful in the context of, of sororities? Yes. Thanks for that question. Um, so uh, the hashtag MeToo has focused on sexual assault and sexual harassment in a variety of settings. And the problem of campus sexual assault is one that has also sort of been troubling scholars, academics, uh, schools, um, victims, lots of different groups. Um, And there are some problems with campus sexual violence, sharing information about um, uh, predators on campus, sharing information about practices that universities employ to keep students safe, Um, and victims being able to share their experience and also have um, a support group and network where they can heal, basically. Um, And uh, in some instances, don't necessarily want to report. So uh, this sort of framework, uh, a social media phenomenon that uh, hashtag MeToo has provided, is especially helpful for sorority victims and for Greek life more generally, because one of the problems that makes um, sorority women particularly vulnerable to sexual assault and sexual violence on campus um, is this culture of secrecy and not coming forward, not talking about ways in which they can stay safe, not talking about factors that put them at greater risk for sexual violence. So uh, this paper actually is about five years worth of both research and practice uh, looking at sexual violence, particularly in high-risk Greek life, and I'll explain high-risk Greek life um, separately, but this problem is one that I've been looking at for a little while, and during this time, this phenomenon, hashtag Me Too, um, has really come forth and and gained a lot of traction. And then there's also been a lot of backlash too. So this, I think this sort of framework and also a systems change framework that I analyzed the paper through um, can be particularly helpful for sorority victims, 
to share information and get support about how to stay safe. So, so Tanya, one of the things I really liked about this paper was that it wasn't just like really kind of sophisticated from a theoretical and policy standpoint, but it all, I could like feel a certain kind of granular level of detail to it. Like it wasn't coming from an abstract perspective. And as I understand it, you have some real on the ground perspective on these problems. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that perspective and how you became interested in, in this subject area. Sure. Uh, And I am a clinical professor, and I direct a domestic violence uh, clinic, and I have um, at a couple of different law schools. And I started to see clients come into the clinic uh, who who are um, college students and also members of sororities, and uh, one woman in particular... um, whom I call Jenna, and I've changed her name and some distinguishing details to protect her privacy. But Jenna is the story that I tell in the introduction of a young woman whose uh, boyfriend raped her in her college dorm room one night. And then what happened after that? Uh, So she was in a sorority and uh, didn't want to tell anybody especially didn't want to tell uh, her sorority sisters um, because she was afraid that she would sort of um, ostracize the this whole sorority that uh, that they wouldn't believe her. Uh, she ended up telling her mother and her mother was the one who prompted her to come to uh, the law clinic to seek a restraining order against the ex-boyfriend. And she didn't show up. Uh, she came for the intake interview. We, we accepted her case. We prepped her case. And then for the, the hearing on the restraining order, she never showed up. And then we didn't hear from her afterwards. And I then sort of realized that this is a problem. And, you know, a lot of victims don't come forward to begin with and then don't follow through to begin with. But there was something in particular about um, Greek life that made sorority victims very reluctant to report in the first place and then to follow through with any sort of campus and also legal processes off campus. Um, So I started to see this as a problem and then um, started to do research. And a lot of the research assistants that I hired were themselves uh, members of sororities um, and alumni of sororities. And then uh, I heard a lot more stories. And then as I started to present my research around the country, I heard from a lot more victims and they shared their stories as well and their experiences. Um, And some of them were good and some of them were bad And, and good, meaning that they felt supported, that they felt heard, that they felt empowered to make the decision that they want. And others had a bad experience where they felt silenced and traumatized, not just after the primary sexual violence, but then afterwards by the system actors, by oftentimes their own sorority sisters. So that was very troubling to me. And I realized that there this hadn't been really addressed um, in legal scholarship. There is a lot of social science research that's pretty consistent since the 1980s about the correlation of 
uh, sorority affiliation and higher risk for sexual victimization. So that's been pretty clear, but it hadn't been analyzed um, in uh, the legal scholarship. And so that's what I'm attempting to do here with this paper. So are there features of sororities or maybe of particular sororities that make the members of those sororities especially vulnerable to sexual violence and especially reluctant to kind of pursue redress when they are victims of sexual violence? Yes. And uh, so I distinguish between um, high risk uh, sororities and fraternities and low risk, uh, because not all fraternities and sororities are the same. There are clear differences by race and interest affinity. So, for example, religious or academic versus a purely social purpose. Um, and the true purpose of the social organizations will often determine whether they're high risk. So what do I mean by high risk sororities and fraternities? They're those that contain the values, norms, and practices that increase women's risk of sexual victimization. And some of the factors that make sorority women, and I would also include fraternity men, all members of Greek life more vulnerable to sexual violence um, are um, partying with other high-risk fraternities and sororities, the uh, prevalent use of alcohol, hypersexualized gender roles and rules, and a culture of silence. And I talk about these factors um, in, at some length um, with a lot of research there. Um, but, but that's the way to distinguish sort of high risk from low risk. Low risk, on the other hand, are uh, sororities and fraternities that address sexual violence, that focus on uh, equality between the genders, um, that um, also foster um, more sort of inclusive environment. So not just by um, uh, race, but sometimes by gender. So uh, you'll have uh, sororities, not just single sex sororities and fraternities that are um, also cropping up. So, so those tend to be the lower risk uh, fraternities and sororities. Well, I wonder about the relationship between sororities and fraternities as well. Like how does that how do those kinds of relationships play into the kind of sexual violence that you're describing? And are there particular sorority fraternity relationships that seem more strongly associated with sexual violence rather than associated with not associated with sexual violence, I guess? Yes. So uh, what is interesting here is sort of the dynamic between the actors uh, and and uh, between the actors, I mean, uh, the sororities and fraternities, because they do uh, associate very closely together. They, they party together. They um, they they date. They have a lot of um, functions that they host together, uh, some, some philanthropic, a lot uh, more social um, in nature, but, uh, but they do depend on each other. Um, and so it's that interaction um, which can make sorority women more vulnerable when they are associating with 
higher risk fraternities. And there is a lot of research that shows that just that association increases women's risk of sexual violence um, because of the alcohol, because of the gender norms, uh, because um, university administrators are reluctant to regulate um, what happens um, in fraternity houses, especially if that behavior happens off campus. Um, and so um, some argue that, well, the sororities are the ones that really hold the power, but more researchers believe that it's really the fraternities that have sort of set up this system where um, they rely on sororities for um, for dating, for social functions, for partying. Um, and they're really the ones sort of in charge of the social scene. And be, by virtue of sort of some of the gender roles, so very um, hyper-masculine roles are often adopted by the high-risk fraternities. Um, these keep women, researchers found, in uh, subordinate positions, and that in and it of itself can make women more at risk for sexual violence. Mm. Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I have very limited familiarity with fraternities, sororities, and and Greek life in general. But some of the social dynamics you describe in your papers sound really deeply pathological. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where they come from and sort of why, why we see them in some circumstances, but not in others. So pathologicals is a really interesting word because sort of historically, a lot of the traditions and norms of Greek life uh, were focused on um, association and uh, solidarity and the benefits of membership were to help advance in career and social standing. And so a lot of these sort of traditions and the secrecy that surround these traditions have not always sort of been rooted in high risk uh, behaviors. Uh, but because of this culture of sort of secrecy um, and uh, oftentimes power and wealth, then there, a dark side has also emerged. And so what we've seen is um, uh, in particular uh, either settings or schools where um, there is a very strong and long tradition of Greek life, uh, then that's, been, that's become so, sort of so entrenched in campus culture and there is a, a strong sort of desire for those institutions to sort of remain in influence and power and then also to sort of maintain their traditions. So it hasn't always been the case that there have been sort of some pathological behaviors. Um, but what has happened is we see increasingly we have seen in the last few years a lot of instances of hazing and sexual violence and just fraternity bad behavior coming to light and uh, lots more reports in the media, lots more sort of um, on the ground uh, social awareness campaigns 
where people are saying, you know, these kinds of very offensive behaviors and slogans, um, slogans like um, no means yes, yes means anal, very sort of graphic and offensive slogans are not acceptable displayed on campus on fraternity row during rush week. So there, there has been sort more uh, attention and focus uh, on these uh, behaviors and more publicized scandals on campus so that we are sort of more aware that this is happening. And this is probably happening everywhere there is Greek life. Um, but some schools, um, th that's just not a feature of student life, uh, a, a large feature of student life. Um, in, in some more urban areas, for example. So I went to Boston University where uh, for undergrad and uh, that was Greek life was only 10% of the, uh, the student life experience. However, having been to, having taught at University of Alabama, that is the largest Greek uh, system in the country. And I think there's over uh, 10,000, this was uh, maybe a few years ago, but there were over 10,000 members of the student body in Greek life. Um, so, so it depends. And, um, you know, a lot of students uh, will choose in high school where they want to go to school based on what kind of social life that school is going to provide. And some uh, students are looking for schools with very strong Greek life. I've, I hear that a lot from my students and my research assistants. So it's really important, I think, for students and their parents to be aware of what is the social climate here at the school? Is there a vibrant uh, social life? Uh, is there vibrant Greek life? Are there other uh, opportunities for students who don't want to participate in Greek life? So some of the more um, rural schools or schools where um, uh, the, the, the college is primarily the uh, what's happening uh, in the town is, is it's a college town and not a whole lot of other things are going on in that town. Students may feel more pressure to join a sorority or fraternity because there's less going on. So, so that's, um, I guess, a longer answer to your question, um, but I'm happy to follow up too. Yeah. Well, you know, so one thing I was really interested in while reading your paper was the way in which, African-American fraternities and sororities seem to have avoided or maybe even actively resisted some of the pathologies that seem to have developed in relation to other kind of more predominantly white fraternities and sororities. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of why you think that's the case and whether Greek life in general or Greek organizations in general might be able to learn something from African-American fraternities and sororities about how to sort of foster a healthier atmosphere. Sure. So the, I, I, yes, I did find in the research that there are some differences in African-American uh, sororities and, and they seem to... Um, 
to be a little bit safer in the sense that they pose less risk of harm for sexual violence. That does not mean that sexual violence is not happening in Black Greek organizations because it is, and we may hear about it less because there are um, dynamics and pressure upon um, victims of color to not report their perpetrator because of the historic and systematic discrimination that they have experienced, people of color have experienced in this country. So it may be that we just know less about it. And a lot of the researchers recommend further studies on sexual behavior fraternity members. Um, however, that being said, um, they do seem to pose less risk of violence and there are less pathologies. And there are several reasons why. A lot of Black Greek organizations often don't have their own houses. So the public settings where they host their parties on campus and the social gatherings are often more visible to campus authorities. Campus authorities also tend to disproportionately monitor Black Greek organizations and then also perhaps disparately enforce university rules about alcohol and drugs on them. So um, Black Greek organizations sometimes feel like they can't really engage in the same behaviors, the, um, the high-risk drinking, um, the, the parties with uh, sexual themes. Um, they don't have houses where a lot of the sexual violence can happen, um, you know, sort of uh, in, in more private settings. Um, and Another reason is that sort of Black Greek organizations historically were organized also for sort of association and solidarity, very much like white Greek organizations, but also in a time of civil rights movements where they were sort of taught and socialized on how to treat and interact with women as part of being a leader in society. And also to, they were held accountable to represent Black Greek organizations well. Um, so, so the true purpose of the Black Greek organizations is often sort of uh, focused around community service and less around um, partying and um, just providing outlets for social life, which is what white uh, organizations, white Greek organizations tend to focus on. So the true purpose uh, is also very different and that contributes to why black Greek organizations um, may be, uh, may pose less risk of harm for sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Well, so are the problems you identify here unique to sororities and fraternities or is there a potential for them to affect other kinds of campus organizations as well? I mean, like I'm thinking, for example, as an undergrad, you know, I went to University of California, Berkeley, where cooperatives were as big of a thing as as fraternities were. Do the same kind of problems affect other kinds of campus organizations? And if not, uh, you know, how should this affect how we think specifically 
about fraternities and sororities in relation to sort of thinking about regulatory regimes and minimizing risk? Well, uh, there is some research uh, about sexual violence um, among um, college athletes as well. And sort of uh, that there's a different culture there um, in terms of um, power and uh, also sort of like a little bit of they hold a special status on campus by virtue of their value to the uh, the college or university. Um, they tend, however, um, to drink less uh, college athletes, but but this is still a huge problem of um, of sexual violence among college athletes. Um, and I, I don't really dive a lot into that, but um, but that is one area of campus life also where there are problems um, and sort of higher higher risk behaviors that are perhaps um, outside of the public eye and outside of sort of administrators' awareness. Mm. So, Tanya, what then can schools and fraternity and sorority organizations do to reduce the risk of sexual violence? I mean, what kinds of approaches do you think are shown to work or likely to work as opposed to what kinds of approaches don't seem to be very effective? Yeah. Um, So I have used a systems change framework in my paper that looks at all of the actors um, that are responsible for sort of creating um, high-risk Greek life and then uh, increasing risk of uh, sexual violence for its members. Um, and that really includes um, individual sorority members, sorority chapters. Um, I would include fraternities in, in that as well. Campus officials and really the Department of Education all have a role to play um, in how sexual violence is handled. And the um, Center for Disease Control has a very good model as well for a socioeconomic, um, I'm sorry, socioecological model for addressing uh, campus sexual violence, where many approaches are um, recommended uh, and in sort of a very comprehensive and systemic strategy. Um, so what can sorority victims do? One of the, um, one of the actors here, um, that they can learn about the risk factors that increase sexual violence and how to build bystander, bystander intervention supports and healthy relationship skills. And I talk and, um, define and describe what that looks like, uh, as well in the paper, And they should receive training and participate in training on positive relationships between uh, not just sorority uh, and fraternities, but between sorority sisters and then healthy uh, norms on gender and sexuality and how to address sexual violence when it happens. What a lot of the research shows is that Sororities just don't talk very openly about sexual violence and the increased 
risk of harm that their members face. And so by doing that in and of itself, you are going to change the climate because more people are going to start to come forward. And then, okay, well, if they come forward, then what do best practices um, for helping uh, victims, what does what do best practices look like? And it's really about empowering the victim with choices and giving them information and helping them make their own choice. So for some, it might be that, okay, I do want to make a report to campus authorities, and I do want to also make a report to local law enforcement, and I want to see this perpetrator, and I want to be able I want to see this perpetrator held accountable, and I want to be able to have this process through campus and legal proceedings to, you know, to, to, to get justice. Um, and then other uh, victims, on the other hand, just want to tell their, just their friends, and they don't want to tell their family, they don't want to tell campus authorities, and they just want to feel safe and secure that they don't have to come around the perpetrator again, or that they're not going to be in a risky situation with this particular fraternity where their perpetrator is a member uh, and feel unsafe. And so it, it could depend on what the, um, what the victim wants. But by talking about it sort of on that level, that's going to help facilitate what can sorority chapters do? Um, they can also acknowledge that there are certain behaviors that place their members at higher risk for sexual violence. And I don't think that, you know, sort of high risk uh, partying with alcohol and very sort of sexualized parties um, would be surprising as 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 factors that could contribute to sexual violence. But it's important for them to also realize and so they can participate and, and make some choices about what they'd like to engage in and how they might want to reframe the um, the the party or, or sort of the theme of the part, particular party. Um, and national organizations can educate their members about sexual violence, how to care for victims, how to report instances. What um, campus officials can do is to ensure that all of um, the Greek organizations on campus train their members on sexual violence and hold offenders accountable. And I talk about the different models. You know, there's sometimes campus um, officials will say, everybody's got to watch this click-through video similar to... Um, alcohol use and abuse on campus and you need to sort of watch this video and click through that you you've seen it and maybe you're engaging um, in a, a couple of interactive quizzes at the end but that's found not to be very helpful um, but uh, there are other sort of uh, sexual violence programs that have been more effect, uh, effective and I talk about that in the paper and mostly campus officials need to establish, reliable processes for victims to report that respect victims' rights and privacy. A lot of the problem is that when victims do report, then the campus administrators um, can secondarily traumatize them by sort of, um, you know, discouraging them from reporting further or suggesting that what happened to them wasn't uh, 
sufficiently serious enough to count uh, in terms of moving forward with a, a, a complaint um, and can uh, really sort of discourage victims from going forward and in worst case scenarios have encouraged victims to, why don't you just sit out a semester and wait for your abuser to graduate, work at Starbucks, and then come back to school? So um, so there have been some really problematic responses uh, by campus officials. Um, and, and finally, they really need to exercise greater authority over high-risk Greek life, um, especially where they're providing um, the spaces, uh, the um, the spaces where fraternities will hold uh, parties that then um, give rise to sexual violence, um, or provide structures and support like um, using university, um, uh, you know, uh, university identification and email uh, servers for fraternities and sororities to conduct their business. Um, so though that, that's a tension, I think, also is, is sort of like, to what degree can campus officials hold these Greek organizations accountable? And, um, and they can do more, uh, especially since um, they're they're creating the structures where Greek organizations are sometimes committing these crimes. And then finally, the Department of Education really can um, implement and enforce policies that hold universities accountable for protecting their students. And we've seen huge changes depending on uh, the uh, administration um, uh, in power at the time. Uh, so how the Department of Education informs the public about Greek-related campus violence, uh, campus sexual violence, whether they do or not, um, and how they hold schools accountable are all ways in which all the actors can, um, can work together. And that's what the CDC recommends, this uh, so social ecological model for the Greek system that I sort of use and then take best practices to apply those to each particular actor. Mm -hmm. Well, so Tanya, in closing, I mean, it really struck me while reading your paper that you know there's a lot of institutional problems and sort of potential institutional fixes, but that at the end of the day, there's kind of the elephant in the room here. It seems like kind of a values problem. And I wonder what you would say to a campus administrator, or maybe even more importantly, you know, a fraternity or a sorority member who wants to change those values. Um, like, how, how does that happen? And to what extent do you think this is sort of a, a sort of a more fundamental problem? about sort of how the people participating in these organizations see themselves in the role of the organization? What I recommend in this paper is that all Greek organizations, and I would say all the system actors, so campus administrators included, help each organization really look at what their true purpose is. Are their actions consistent with the goal of reducing sexual violence? And, and what, what, are, what is the true purpose around which they gather? So is it, because it was historically about service, 
scholarship, leadership, and friendship, at least in the white Greek organizations, it's become alcohol, partying, sex, and silence. And so helping organizations um, not just look at what their rhetoric is and say, oh, well, this is our purpose, but how are they acting? And are they acting in ways that are going to keep their members safe? Or are they acting in ways that are going to um, subject their members to uh, violence and criminal conduct? So helping them sort of reimagine what their true purpose is, is one way to get back to sort of like, what are the values that we have gathered around that we sort of um, believe and espouse and we want to work towards and that sexual violence and accepting that sexual violence um, is happening on campus. And that's been pretty clearly uh, established through the research and that that members of Greek organizations are at greater risk of sexual violence and accepting sort of that research is a very good starting point for then looking at what each organization's true purpose is and how are they, how are their behaviors sort of contributing to that goal. And a lot of colleges and universities have also sort of wondered now whether, um, it's the benefits are worth the risks uh, of having Greek life. And a lot of sort of campus administrators see a lot of the risk associated with Greek life, particularly if the goals are alcohol partying, sex and silence um, and saying, you know what, we're not we, that that's not something that that is going to be consistent with our university's values and that something that we don't want to continue to support. So we're not going to offer this uh, campus group the same level of support that we would another uh, group or that this uh, Greek organization is not going to be recognized on campus. And so they're going to have to exist off campus and they're not going to be able to use sort of university auspices to exist and, and to function. Um, so those are ways in which um, everybody can sort of get back to deciding what are our values here and are we acting consistent with those values? Mm. Well, thank you so much, Tanya, for coming on the show. This is a, a great paper and I really learned a lot talking to you about this really pressing and important problem. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Now I miss your father. 